following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Thank you, Ariana. I have the uh, task, had the task of preparing a sermon on this story this week, and it's a task that I that I love and I'm grateful to have been given, but uh, it does mean that I don't really very often get to experience something coming to me that way because I'm trying to, you know, to share with you. And things like this reverse that for me and allow me to have my sermon for the week, if you will. Um, so I'm very grateful to Ariana for doing that. Um, and it just, I think it speaks to the the awesome truth that there's so many different ways to look at at the story of Scripture and the story of God. And we try to hit as many of them as we can because I know that they don't all always connect with every person. So, thank you again. One of the other things that we've been doing during the season of Lent to help you connect with God is we've been doing these weekly spiritual practices. And each week we've been giving you a a little card that looks like this. And on one side it has a a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline and then a that you can do once during the week, and then a, a meditation from Scripture that you can meditate on each day during the week. And on the back, it has a space, blank space for thoughts and reflections, and, and we've given you a new one each week, and we've been asking you to bring them in and hang them on this really beautiful display in the corner of the room here. And I want to say two things. First is that this week is a catch-up week. We have, we'll do one more next week that we we're going to do today, but I think that given it's the practice itself, I think it would fit better next week than this week. Um, so you don't get a new one today, but it's a catch-up week. We've put out all of the ones that we've done so far on the communion table, and when you come to take communion, um, even if you don't take communion, you can come to the table after the, after the sermon and um, pick up any of them that you've missed out on and, and experience those. And the second thing I wanted to say is that please come and look at some of these before you leave today, whether it's during the response time following the sermon after communion, or whether it's after the service, please come and take a look at these. I read through these this morning, and just the, the responses that some people have brought to this experience um, are really moving, very profound. So if you haven't gone and looked at that yet, you, you really are missing out, and, and you're missing part of the experience of this whole thing that we've been doing. So make sure you see those before you go today. It really is a great, great thing. So I'm going to tell this story of, of Palm Sunday, also known as the Triumphal Entry. And I want to tell it in three movements. Um, this, the text that we're going to look at, I think, has three distinct parts. And so what we'll do first is read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and look at each, each of the three parts a little bit at a time. And for each one, I'll have a couple of observations, and then, more importantly, a couple of questions that I'd like you to ask of yourself um, in response to that section of scripture. And, uh, you know, most of the time I have s- sort of one thing that I want to share with you on a Sunday morning, one big point. That's what the preaching books tell you that you're supposed to do. It doesn't always work out that way, and that's okay, too. This is one of those weeks where it's a little bit different. And um, uh, so, but since the story touched me in a few different ways, I, I, I wanted to share that with you, and I hope that it will give you a chance to, to share in that experience with me. So, 
Um, when we get to that three movements part in just a couple of minutes, maybe get out a pen and a paper, piece of paper. You can use a bulletin or something that you brought with you or take notes on your phone. Um, I don't want you to take notes and record everything I'm saying like I'm a college professor, but what I do want you to do is if I'm asking one of these questions of the text and it seems to be one that the Spirit is prompting you that you need to answer, I want you to write it down, however you like to write things down. Some of you like to write on your hand. Um, and ponder it, because it, if you just sort of like... Here's the thing. <laughs> when the Spirit speaks to you in a, in a, in a quiet moment like that, it, you really only have to ignore it for five or ten seconds, and then he won't bother you again for the rest of the week at least. <laughs> so you need to let the Spirit bother you and record that, that prompting. Otherwise, it's gone, and that's no good, right? So today's Gospel reading is from Luke, chapter 19. And we'll read the whole thing in just a second, but um, I want to just read the first couple words and then pause for a minute. Luke 19, on our red Bibles under the chairs and in the seat pockets is page 854. The first verse of this passage says, after he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, he is Jesus, of course, and um, we need to consider that phrase after he had said this, because apparently what's going to come next is somewhat tied to what he has already said. This is a variation on my favorite rule, which is what is the therefore, therefore, and if you see a therefore, you, it's, it's against the law to start there. You have to look back to see why, why he's saying therefore. In this case, I want to look back just a little bit to say why, what Jesus had just said, because in this case, it does, does actually um, matter. And so what he had just said to them, um, it starts in verse, uh, verse 11, he had, he had told them a parable, a story, um, and the text tells us that he told them for a specific reason. As they were listening to this, verse 11, he went on to tell them a parable, and this is why. Because he was near Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So because this was their perception, he told them a story. And it's a rather interesting story, um, kind of morbid, actually. Read it on your own time. Um, but the point is, this is a hint at what's about to happen when they get into Jerusalem what the people's expectations were, and so forth. Um, so after he had said that, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And, and let me just show you the geography here, because that is sort of of interest, if not to anybody else, at least to me. Um, this is uh, Palestine at the time of Jesus, and this is the Mediterranean Sea, right? It goes, kind of makes a big loop like that over onto our ceiling. And the story happens... Right here, between Jericho, like an old man with my hand shaking, between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it mentions the Mount of Olives. So there's this road between Jericho and Jerusalem, maybe about 15 miles between the two places, and uh, that's where the story is happening. Okay, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Would you stand, please, for the reading of the Gospel? Luke 19, 28 through 44. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. 
So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, and here's where they quote Psalm 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you can be seated. So the three movements that I want to look at are a movement of preparation, a movement of travel, and then a movement of arrival in Jerusalem. This first one is preparation. is verses 28 through 35. Um, this is where he, he tells the disciples to go get the cult and to untie it and how to respond if someone challenges them. And they do, and they bring the colt back, and they put him on it, and they depart. There's a few things that are, that are interesting to me here. The first one is, I have a question. Why did he, why did he need the colt? The, the Bible actually uses that word. When they ask, when, when he, he says, when somebody asks you what you're doing, tell them what? The Lord needs it. That was interesting to me. This is Jesus, after all. Why does he need a cult? Um, and he's got all these disciples with him. They're just getting the one cult, so it's not like they're all going to make better time on the way to Jerusalem because they have a vehicle. It's just the one. So it's not for that reason. Now, I think, actually, it probably echoes some of the Old Testament stuff. There's references to kings on cults and donkeys and so forth uh, peppered throughout the Old Testament. Um, but the point is, he needed this animal, whether it was to, to make this connection to the Hebrew Bible or for something else. But he needed it. And if you were here um, maybe 50 weeks ago, <laughs> last Palm Sunday, we talked about this, and I, I actually focused on the donkey pretty closely and suggested that I think you should imagine yourself like the donkey. Um, because the, the point is this. The question is this. If he can use a donkey for this great moment in his ministry, surely he can use you, each one of you, as well. And so the question is how? How might Jesus want to, to use you 
in the course of his ongoing ministry for people today? That's the first question. And what an interesting way to obtain this animal, too, isn't it? I always marvel at this. Every Palm Sunday, this is my favorite part. Because he tells these four disciples to go steal a donkey, right? <laughs> and personally, if I were there and I sensed Jesus about to tell some of his disciples to go steal a donkey, I would be sort of sneaking to the back of the crowd, <laughs> hoping that he didn't choose me, Right? That is what I would be doing, because I am terrified by that kind of thing. And so he's like, Sturs and Scott, you guys go get the donkey. And I'm like, oh, come on. (laughs) I hate that feeling. And it's not that I would hate the feeling of sneaking up and stealing a donkey. (laughs) That might be kind of fun. What I would hate is the moment when somebody goes, hey, What are you doing untying that colt? That is like, that. I have a visceral feeling in my chest right now, even just thinking about that moment. I hate that kind of feeling. And so the question for me, obviously, (laughs) and maybe for some of you, is this. Are you willing to be questioned while doing the work of the gospel? Are you willing to face a challenge from somebody else in the course of doing the work that Jesus has called you to do? Since that's not an open-ended question, maybe I'll say it this way. How might you respond the next time somebody challenges you while you're in the course of doing the work that Jesus has told you to do? Maybe secondarily, are you sneaking to the back of the pack (laughs) when you sense that ask coming on? And here's the the third thing for this first movement that I that I noticed. I'd never noticed this before. I I was like church boy from the day I was born. I'd never noticed this word before. Um, Verse 35. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. They put Jesus on this colt. (laughs) Who knows why he had asked them to get it. He didn't actually say it. They brought it, and they said, here. It's It's like they want to kind of be in charge of what's going on here. They're pushing this forward in the way that they want it to go. Maybe they have the words of the Hebrew Bible, some of those prophetic kind of passages in their ears, and they're thinking, yes, this is the moment. Remember the thing about the donkey. Quick, put him on there. But as you see as the story goes on, and, and if you've heard the story before, especially if you've heard me talk about it before, you know they don't really know what they're doing. They don't know what they're cheering for. They're about a week away from screaming for his crucifixion. So they are not exactly clued in. They're propping him up on this donkey and get going, quick. And so my question for you in this observation is this. Do you, what, what kind of prop do you want to turn Jesus into in your own life, in your own world? What do you want to 
stick him on and push in the direction that you want him to go? What is the thing in your life that you, is kind of your thing, that you want to you walk in behind Jesus to the place you already wanted to go, saying the words you already wanted to say? So that's the first movement, preparation. The second movement, as I said, is the travel from Jericho across the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem. And it's in this movement that we begin to see how misguided these disciples are, how their expectations are not actually in line with what Jesus really wanted to bring about. And this is one of those cases where the, the word disciples can be misleading. Sometimes you hear disciples, you think of 12 people, right, the 12 apostles. But the, very often in the Gospels, the disciples is just the, the, the crowd of people who are following him from place to place. And in, it seems clear in this text that this is a big crowd. It wasn't just the 12 disciples, it was the disciples. And you see in verse 38, they, they, they have begun, 37 and 38, they've begun to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power, the NIV says, all the miracles that they had seen, saying, and here they're echoing their Old Testament, which for them was just uh, the Testament, I guess, wasn't old, um, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 118. And then they go on to quote and say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So if you don't know what's going on here, what the people wanted was not a new kingdom, not of this world, which is what Jesus was continually saying he was ushering in as these events go on. What they wanted was a, a political uh, moment. They wanted Jesus to come in as a conquering king to overthrow the oppressive Roman regime that they were laboring under as Jewish people. And so the the politics of their day were hostile to their religious expression. And they wanted Jesus to come in and blow the whole thing up so that they they could be in charge politically the way they thought that they were entitled to be through their whole history. Does this sound familiar to anybody? So my question is, when, when have you been guilty of treating Jesus like a political tool rather than the ruler of a kingdom that is not of this world? A totally separate entity, a spiritual civilization. When have you been guilty of trying to uh, domesticate and um, emigrate Jesus into, into your own political reality? Superimpose him on top of wherever you might be for, I think, most of us, if not all of us, this is America. Here's another thing that I observed. And since they're quoting, it's kind of hard to hold it against them, but I did notice that they called out for peace where? Peace in heaven. What did the angels say when Jesus was born? Peace on earth. <laughs> that's, that's what Jesus was about. <laughs> and they're kind of, they're, I mean, they're, again, they're quoting this stuff. It's okay, but peace in heaven, glory in the highest heaven. All of this stuff removed from us. 
So when have you been guilty of waiting for peace instead of working for peace? When have you been guilty of waiting for a glory or to express it maybe in the sweet by and by, as the old hymn says, instead of in the here and now? Because Jesus, when he talked about his kingdom, said it's not of this world and he said it is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not something that, that comes later. Now there is an eschatological reality, if you'll pardon my uh, jargon, there is an end times reality of God's kingdom that is part of what we believe and part of what we celebrate and certainly something we anticipate. But it's not all there is. You don't follow Jesus so that you can get saved and be in heaven with him someday. Maybe that is why you started to follow Jesus. <laughs> Growing up in my church, that's why you started to follow Jesus for sure. What I have come to believe and realize is that you also must follow him now. And that it's not enough to wait for peace in heaven. You have to work for peace on earth. It's not enough to wait for the, the, the perfection of Christ's kingdom at the end of all things. You have to live in that as a citizen of that kingdom right now. And then the, the last thing in this, this second movement of traveling is the the sour Pharisees, as they get a little bit closer to Jerusalem, the Pharisees start coming out of the woodwork. And I mean, the disciples may have been misguided, but they were at least worshiping Jesus. They were clueless about what they were saying, I think. But they were worshiping him, which is more than could be said for the Pharisees. The Pharisees implore Jesus to tell his disciples to stop. And, you know, maybe he should have, given that they were confused. <laughs> but he didn't. I think that the Pharisees, we turn them into a straw man. It's a little bit too easy to, to knock them down sometimes. A little too easy to say those Pharisees. Because for those of us who, who live in the church and this is our world, that's, I mean, that's our risk. That's the one that we need to worry about, most of us. And so I wonder, here's my question about this, this last thing in the second movement. Have you ever been guilty of trying to quiet down some exuberant expression of people because they were misguided? Because what they were saying is not quite doctrinally sound um, or otherwise to your liking. I guess what I'm asking is, have you ever been to a charismatic church? <laughs> Um, I didn't write that in my notes. I'm going to do that again tonight. <laughs> um, that's a joke, but, but maybe it's true, right? You go to the, some other churches that maybe don't have their whole act together quite. You know, they, they're not uh, like we do, right? Exactly, that's what I'm saying. They're not, they don't have it quite in control. They don't maybe think about faith very intellectually. <laughs> you know... Right? <laughs> You've been there. <laughs> and you're like, oh man. Oh. Jesus, tell your disciples to stop. Apparently, getting everything exactly, exactly right and understanding 
the reality that you live in to, a, to the fullest extent is not a prerequisite for crying out in worship to Jesus. Apparently that's not actually required at all. And if you are the person who has been in that space, as I have been, you are the Pharisee in this story. As Nathan said to King David, you are the man. <laughs> and he wasn't saying you to man. So the third movement is his arrival into Jerusalem. And the first thing that happens uh, upon their arrival in the holy city is not what we might expect. It certainly is not what the disciples would have expected because they're thinking, this is the moment. He's going to find Herod, wherever that palace is, and he's going to, you know, we're going to take it by force and, and we're going to put him on the throne where he belongs as our new king in the line of David. And these Roman Gentiles can just... Get out. What he does when he gets to Jerusalem is he stops and falls silent and begins to weep. Instead of a conquering king, we have a, a crybaby king. He's not exactly Aragorn in this moment, is he? Lord of the Rings nerds. He weeps. Well, that's not going to make a very scary impression on King Herod, is it? The song that we sang reminds us that Jesus is a wounded healer. We will, exp- we will kind of understand, I hope, better on Good Friday the extent to which he is wounded as our healer and the extent to which he weeps as our king. So why did he cry for Jerusalem? Well, what he said is, you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. And I've used, you, didn't, you didn't realize that God had come to you. So my last question this morning is this. In what ways are you failing to recognize God's visitation in your life? If Jesus were to visit here, whatever expectations we might have of him in that moment, none of which he would probably meet because that's the way he is, would he weep for you because you have colossally missed the point? of God's presence with you? Would he weep for us, artists and church? Because we had failed to recognize God's visitation in our life. By the way, what he also says, if you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, sort of connects it to that other question, doesn't it? How have you missed the point? How have we missed the point? It's my last question for you. This is one of those sermons that has lots of questions and not too many answers. And uh, I won't apologize for that. Um, But I hope that at least one of those questions has hit you the way several of them hit me. 
And I think it's our job to work out the answers together as a community. And so be part of it. Stay around. And, and let's make some answers together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the words of Scripture, for the stories of your Son, Jesus, even when they offer us many more questions than they provide for us answers. We pray that this season of Lent has been and will continue to be one of introspection and realization of your presence. We pray that you would continue to give us the questions to ask and that your grace would empower us to seek the answers to those questions in community together with each other as you are in community with the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Uh, Our response to hearing the word proclaimed is to come to the table of the Lord. And the closer we inch toward um, Good Friday, Easter, I think the more meaningful these elements become. That we are invited to the same ritual that he instituted with his disciples on the night that one of them betrayed him is a pretty amazing thing. We take communion together uh, by intinction, which means you tear off the bread and dip it in the wine uh, or the juice. We have both. Use whichever is appropriate for you and your family. We remember as we do it, Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We do it as an act of unity with each other and with other Christians around the city and around the world and throughout history. It connects us all together. And we do it to receive the food for our souls, to strengthen our weary spirits. So we'll continue to worship him in song together. And you can also worship by coming to the table. And uh, the prayer team, some of the members of the prayer team will be in the corner here. If you'd like to have personal prayer for something going on in your life, you can come and and ask them to pray for you or pray with you. And you can look at the, the Lenten cards as well. Don't forget you can take more of those from the table if you if you missed out on one or more of them this season. Um, The table is open. Respond to the Spirit's leading in your life. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.